Hello again and welcome. You will remember after Christmas I asked for some suggestions as to how these talks might be improved. And one person did request some more teaching about the background to the New Testament, the culture of the people who feature in our New Testament. And so that's what I'd like to do. We will come back to the Sermon on the Mount after Easter. But I would like to spend two sessions on helping you to understand something of the background to the New Testament itself. Let's look at the land, first of all. Have a look at the, the first photograph I sent you. Uh, this country is known to us as the Holy Land, the land where God chose to be human. Its earliest name is Canaan, or the land of purple, although the Hebrews called it Israel, meaning may God rule, and the Greeks gave it the name Palestine, meaning Philistine land. It's a small country about the size of Wales, 150 miles from north to south. Dan is in the northernmost point and Beersheba is in the southernmost point. And it's about 50 miles across from the west to the east. You can see the whole of it on a clear day from an aircraft. And in New Testament times, it sustained a population of about one million people. Now on this particular map, you can see it's been divided into four strips. The first strip is the coastal plain. And you can see there the towns of Joppa. Joppa was the main port for Jerusalem and also Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman capital. So Pontius Pilate and other governors would usually be living in Caesarea. The second section is the central hills. And in the north are the hundred hills of Galilee, separated from the southern hills by the fertile plain of Esdraelon. Many of the significant places in your New Testament are located here in these central hills. Nazareth, Cana, Nain, Samaria, Jerusalem and Bethlehem all lie in this hilly section. Then we come to a third strip of land east of Jordan, it's shown as on the map you're looking at, the Jordan Rift Valley. From the Sea of Galilee, this rift runs south into Africa as far as Malawi and Lake Nyasa. It has been called the deepest ditch in the world. It begins at the Sea of Galilee, but it, this sea has four names as well as Galilee. It's also known in your Bibles as the Sea of Tiberias, Lake Genesaret and Lake Chinnereth. It's not a sea at all. The water is fresh and it's quite big. It's 13 miles from north to south and it's eight miles wide at its widest point. The western shores of this lake host Tiberius, Capernaum, Bethsaida and Magdala. And the lake was notorious for sudden storms which whipped in from the narrow valleys on the eastern side. You remember the stilling of the storm when Jesus and the disciples were on the lake, not expecting any trouble at all, and there was a sudden violent demonic storm. These were quite common on Galilee. The River Jordan, which flows out of Galilee, is 65 miles long as the crow flies, but it doesn't flow in a straight line. It meanders 220 miles, twisting like a snake. It runs into the Dead Sea, which is a long sea, 47 miles in length and 10 miles in breadth. It's five times more salty than the Earth's oceans 
and it's a quarter of a mile below their level. It is said to be the lowest point on the Earth's surface. East of Jordan is where Jesus delivered legion from many evil spirits. And you may remember that 2,000 pigs died on that occasion. Now let me tell you about James chapter 5. He wrote this. He was talking about the Lord's coming. Be patient for the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains. You've probably heard of the former and the latter rains, the autumn rains and the spring rains. The Holy Land has a Mediterranean climate with hot, dry summers and mild, wet winters. The rainy season begins in October or November with the early rains. And that's when the farmers can plant their crops. It rains a bit throughout the winter when the, we the weather is relatively mild. And then the latter rains come in April or May and they can cause flash floods. You remember the parable Jesus told about two men who built houses on two foundations and there was flash flooding and one house collapsed and the other one remained firmly built. Well, yep, flash flooding is a feature of the climate of this land. Let's look a little bit about the agriculture then. Have a look at picture number two. You can see there picture of some winnowing forks. And John the Baptist said that when the Messiah came, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. A farmer, having uh, harvested his grain, would bring it to a threshing floor, a flat area, as you can see there. He'd tip it all out onto the floor and then he would thrash it. You see that spade? He would take a spade and he would hit it hard. This was to separate the wheat from the chaff. When that had been done, he would then take those forks and he would throw the stuff into the air on a windy day and the wind would carry away the stalks and the husks and they could be burnt and the grain would fall to the ground and that could be turned into flour. Remember, sorry, once the flour is made, then women could buy it and they could use it to cook their bread. And you can see on the next picture, picture number three, two women sitting at a mill, grinding their grain into uh, flour for making, turning into bread. And Jesus spoke about his coming when one person would be grinding the mill, one would be taken and the other one would be left. Most meals consisted of bread, but also they ate fish, fruit and eggs. The wealthy people had bread made from wheat and poor people had bread made from flour. They also put olive oil into the bread sometimes and they used olive oil as the basic cooking fat. You remember the story of the ten bridesmaids, five of whom had oil in their lamps and five of whom didn't. And you'll also remember the parable of the Good Samaritan who used olive oil as a soothing agent for the wounds of the man who had been beaten up on the Jericho Road. The evening meal would often be a stew and it might contain sparrow meat. And if you compare Matthew chapter 10 verse 29 and Luke chapter 12 verse 6, you would find that in Matthew two 
sparrows could be bought for a penny and in Luke 5 for two pennies. So if you bought four, you got one thrown in for free. So they had freebie offers in those days, just as we do today. Lamb was a great luxury and was only eaten at Passover time. Many of their meals were vegetarian. Fish from the Sea of Galilee could be roasted on an open fire. And there were 14 species of fish that could be caught in Galilee. And you remember the resurrection story when the disciples had been fishing and Jesus was on the beach and he was cooking or preparing to cook their breakfast for them. Skewered locusts were a delicacy and grasshoppers were eaten. And again, you remember John the Baptist who lived on locusts and wild honey while he was in the desert. The favorite drink was wine. They didn't drink much beer and water was too precious to drink. So wine was kept in skins. These were the, uh, the, the skins made from the stomachs of sheep and these would go hard and brittle over time. And you remember how Jesus said that new wine had to be put into new skins, but otherwise the wine would be lost. So it was with the, the kingdom of God, couldn't be squeezed into the old covenant. Wine, of course, is made from grapes and vineyards are a common feature of the New Testament, especially of the four gospels. Jesus gave us four parables about vineyards. There were the workers in the vineyard who all got paid one penny, one denarius for their day's work, regardless of how long they'd worked for. The parable of two sons, one said, I'll go and work for you in the vineyard, dad, and didn't. And the other one said, I can't be bothered today, but did. The story of the wicked tenants who uh, beat up and ultimately killed messengers from the owner of the vineyard, including his son, when these people came to collect the rent from the vineyard. And then he told a story about a fig tree in a vineyard. And the question there is, what on earth was a fig tree doing in a vineyard? And if it's not bearing fruit, you're definitely going to get rid of it. Jesus called himself the true vine and said every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes. Now once the grapes were gathered into baskets they will be taken away and they may be turned into wine at a wine press often made out of solid rock and the grapes were put into this press and they were trodden down underfoot and then the wine would flow out through a drain into a vessel at a slightly lower level. This is vividly described in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 180 miles. I'd like to turn our attention now to how the country was run in those days. And the Holy Land was a province of the Roman Empire. The empire stretched from Portugal and France in the west to Syria and Arabia in the east. And it was divided into 36 provinces and each province was ruled over by a procurator. 
These are usually called governors in the New Testament. The empire consisted of 50 million people. Rome had conquered Israel in 63 BC after a civil war. One Jewish faction had asked for support from the Roman general Pompey, and he marched into Jerusalem in the name of Rome. He went into the Holy of Holies, sword in hand, in the temple, expecting to find some glittering idol of gold that he could steal, and actually found it to be empty because all the paraphernalia from the Holy of Holies had been stolen long before by Nebuchadnezzar. August, Augustus Caesar became the sole ruler of Rome, of the Roman world in 31 BC, and ruled until 14 AD. And he brought peace and order, a judicial system and good roads to the empire. Roman citizens had special privileges, but you didn't have to be born in Rome to be a Roman citizen, as we know in the case of Paul. Citizens were under the direct protection of the emperor himself, and even had the right of legal appeal for his help. And Paul did this at his trial by Governor Festus. He appealed to Caesar rather than risk a trial in Jerusalem. And that Caesar, as you're going to hear, was Nero. If you look at picture four, you will see a representation there of some of the Caesars in New Testament times. There were eight of them. Only a few of them are named, but I'll run through them. There was Augustus, who was the Caesar at the time of Jesus's birth. All the other references to Caesar in the Gospels, when Jesus was an adult, are to Tiberius. In the early half of Acts, up to about chapter 10, we have Caligula, but he's never mentioned by name. And then in chapter 11, up to chapter 18, we have Claudius. He is named. He is the emperor who ordered all the Jews to get out of Rome. And after chapter 18, all the other references in the Acts are to Nero. Now, Nero was the first emperor to persecute the church, but it was disorganized, it was random, it was vindictive, it was just Nero just lashing out at somebody, and many Christians died. In AD 70, the Jews rebelled against Rome in what is known as the Jewish Revolt. And Vespasian, he was the emperor when the Jewish re Revolt was put down. Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed in the year AD 70. The general who had carried out that destruction was Titus and he became the emperor after Vespasian. And then the last emperor, again, who is not named, but who is there in the New Testament is Domitian. Now Domitian declared himself to be Lord and God. And he had a temple built in his honor in Laodicea. Remember Laodicea, the book of Revelation? Now Jews and Christians now faced a stark choice. They were monotheists. Could they worship Caesar as well as God? And in the case of Christians, could they worship Caesar as well as Jesus Christ? Of course they could not. And the persecution in his reign is the persecution that forms the background to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This was an organized, a planned, a systematic attempt to wipe out the church and to destroy the gospel. Now let's come back to Judea in the time of Pilate. Pilate was in day-to-day -day control of Judea when Jesus was an adult 
and he had always between two and four legions available to help him in Palestine itself. There are three governors mentioned in the New Testament, Pontius Pilate, who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus, Felix, who tried Paul, and who was afraid when Paul preached on judgment, and Festus, who also tried Paul and agreed to Paul's appeal to Nero in Rome. Now Pontius Pilate, he was the governor from 26 to 36. And as I said, he ruled from Caesarea and commanded about 3,000 troops. But he often came to Jerusalem to check that things were peaceful in that city, and they often weren't. If you look at picture number five, you will see there some Roman eagles. Now these are the topmost piece feature on these staffs, and they were regarded as being divine by the Roman soldiers. So to a Jew, these were idols, and Pilate foolishly ordered his troops into the temple precincts themselves, carrying their eagles. And there was a whole scale Jewish riot, and Pilate had to withdraw his men. On another occasion, Pilate sent his men into the temple treasury, where loyal Jews will pay their tithes and their offerings, and he stole the money to build an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. Again, there was a riot. Now, neither of these riots is mentioned in our New Testament, but they shed a light upon what happened at the trial of Jesus. So when Jesus was on trial and accused of claiming to be a king, Pilate was terrified there might be a riot in his favour, and then news of this would reach the ears of Rome, and Pilate would be in trouble in Rome for a third time. The chief priest threatened, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, and they would have stirred up the crowds. So Pilate caved in, washed his hands, and commanded the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Now we come to the family of the Herods, and if their family story was being written for children today, undoubtedly the title would be The Horrible Herods. If you look at picture number six, you will see there a family tree of these men. Now, when people were hostile to Rome, as the Jews were, the Romans liked to keep some local king in power who would rule as clients of Rome. And Herod the Great had been appointed to rule Judea. But he was a desert sheikh. He wasn't a Jew at all. He was from Edom. And he ruled for about 33 years, right up until the birth of Jesus. He married a Jewish princess called Mariamne. And so his sons had some Jewish blood in their veins. But later, it turned out that some Jewish people were more in favour of his sons than they were of Herod. And therefore, Herod had them killed because they were potential rivals to his authority and his throne. Mariamne was killed as well. So when Jesus was born and wise men came to Herod and said, oh, where's the king of the Jews who's just been born? Herod's ears pricked up. If he could kill his own children, he could certainly kill children around Bethlehem who might be this new rival king of the Jews. The Jews hated him because he wasn't Jewish and because he brought pagan things into the Holy Land. He had theatres and amphitheatres and hippodromes 
built in Jerusalem and Jericho and Caesarea in honour of Augustus, and there men took part in the Grecian games naked. When he died, his kingdom was divided by four of his sons, and uh, the first, the most important one we need to mention is Herod Antipas. Now Herod Antipas took control of Galilee. So when Jesus was a grown man, Herod Antipas was his Galilean king. It was Herod Antipas who ordered that John the Baptist be decapitated. And you remember why. John the Baptist had, had condemned the king because he, as a divorced man, was marrying a divorced woman who had been married to his own brother. And John the Baptist condemned this and paid for it with his life. Later in the Gospels, it was Herod Antipas who sat in court with Pontius Pilate trying to bring charges against Jesus. The next son of Herod the Great is Archelaus, and he was the worst of them all. He inherited Samaria and Judea, so he was the king of Jerusalem, but he only ruled for 10 years. Do you remember when uh, the baby was brought back uh, and um, Joseph and Mary <coughs> minded to settle in Bethlehem? Then they found that Archelaus was king there. They knew what a bloodthirsty man he was, and they returned to Nazareth. Well, Archelaus was a dreadful king, and he was so bad that the Jews threatened to send, or, or rather they did send, a deputation to Rome, warning Rome that there would be a full-scale revolt if they, he was not removed. So he was removed and replaced by governors, by procurators, of which Pontius Pilate was one. The grandson of Herod the Great is Herod Agrippa I, and he eventually ruled over Galilee and Judea and the whole of his grandfather's kingdom. It was he who cut off the Apostle James's head. And you remember that Peter was in prison at the time, in prison on the orders of Herod Agrippa I. And Peter got out, rescued by an angel. Herod Agrippa I was being hailed as a god. This is the voice of a god and not of a man his uh, devotees were shouting and chanting and worshipping, and he died at the age of 34, eaten of worms. That's in Acts chapter 12. His son was Herod Agrippa II, and he was the man in the Acts of the Apostles who helped Governor Felix sort out the charges against Paul, which you'll find in Acts chapter 25. He said, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian, to Paul? When the Jewish revolt took place in the year 70, he sided with the Romans and he lived to a ripe old age and he died in the year 100. He was the last of the Herods. Now what I've tried to do today is to share with you some of the background to the New Testament so you understand more clearly the kind of country it was, the kind of land, the kind of climate, the kind of foods that grew, how they ran their agriculture, and who ran the country. The Caesars, the, the emperors, and also the procurators or governors in Judea, and then the Herods, 
who ruled over the country as client rulers from the Roman authority. So I hope this, this talk has helped you to understand a little bit more about the background to the New Testament and the culture of the people. And we will return to this theme next time. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.